Well, all right, we are over. And if we had some new songs I was trying to work on for tonight, and I just didn't get it all done. One was so new, they didn't even have the words printed on the internet. <laughs> but it was a good song. It uh, probably worked out better if we had more people here for it, but it's a pretty up-tempo song. We'll try and get it here for you next time. And then some other ones that were, were, were fairly new, but I was able to find the words for those songs, but then just ran out of time to get all the stuff on over here. So we'll try and get that over here for you next week. You can turn your Bibles or look up on the screen. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We're looking at the letters to the seven churches. We've covered two so far. We're on church number three. This, of course, is the church of Pergamos or Pergamum. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? These things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is speculated to be probably the hardest city in the ancient world to be a Christian in. It was one of the most beautiful, but also one of the most isolated cities of the day. And if you were up on Facebook today, I put a picture up there. I picked that one out specifically to show you something in it. How many saw the picture that I put up on Facebook today? Anybody see that? One, two, we got two, we got three, we got four. Oh, good. We got at least some of you in there. I put, yeah, look at you can help. He showed it. All right, that's good. The reason I put that picture in there of all the ones that were there was the picture of the amphitheater. And so if you got up there and you see it, what I wanted you to see, and if you saw the picture, one of the things you may have taken note of was how high up it was. Because this amphitheater just shows you, and you were looking at a small little stuff down below. It is a very elevated city. There are no major roads to go through this city. It is, that's what leads to its isolation. Because of the isolation... It took a long time for the world outside to affect it. So what you had here was a lot of the uh, old religions, as they were practiced, were still practiced in the same way in Pergamos, and not the way the more modern cities were, were, were going. The effects of the modern city were not quite getting to them. And so it took a lot longer for things to affect Pergamos as it did others. Now, this, uh, that meant that a lot of the worship that was going on there was done the old way, in the Greek way. So this, this city was more Greek than it was Roman, and more Greek in its influence than it was Roman. The rest of the world had been affected by the, by the Roman influence, but not so much this one. It was also an uh, easy city, easily to defend. It became the administrative city for the area of, of this area of Asia, for the Roman Empire. And so they put their, their administration head over in this area. The um, proconsul, who was uh, the governor of the of, uh, Roman Empire, was given what was called the right of the sword. He had the right of the sword here. And what would happen with that was he had a, basically a sword. And people were come in front of him for judgment. Whatever he said on judgment, he would take that sword, he'd swing it on down. And whatever he said for judgment stood. There was no jury. There was no trial. If he deemed it this way and swung the sword, that's how it was. Now, that was used a lot against Christians in this day and age. When they were brought before them, the Christians were brought, and if you did not 
worship the way that they wanted you to worship, they did not do it, then he would give you a chance. And if you didn't do so, he would swing the sword. And he wouldn't chop off your head with the sword, but he would swing the sword, the right of the sword. And by doing so, he would declare your execution. And then you were just taken out and you were executed. Now, there's a couple of uh, famous uh, worshiping uh, or idolatrous worships that went on in this city, some of which you're probably already familiar with. Uh, Athena, most people are, are pretty much familiar with, with the worship of Athena. Zeus, most people are pretty familiar with the worship of, of Zeus. Zeus, though, this is a, one of the big thrones for or one of the big uh, worships of centers for Zeus. And so they, what they had for Zeus was they had this throne. It was elevated about 800 feet above the city. And it was, it was made out of layers of gold. And the places that were not gold, they painted gold. And so when the sun would hit it, it would reflect down onto the city. It was an amazing sight, they say. And it just, uh, it just was uh, an awesome thing to look at, which, which, of course, what they wanted to do with this type of worship. So Zeus was, was worshipped there. Uh, but also there was this other god there that you may not be quite as, as familiar with, Asclepius. And this was the god of supernatural healing, Asclepius. What he was, was people would bring the sick. They had this big, this is one of the the three largest temples for this God. One of them was right here, of the three. I think, did I write down in your outline where the three cities were? Or did I write it down in mine? Yeah, they were, uh, the three main temples for this were in, I don't even know these other cities, Epidaurus and Kos. But Pergamum was the, was the other one. Uh, like I said, those other ones I'm not quite as, as familiar with. But uh, you would really enjoy this worship. <laughs> if you were sick, you were brought to this place. And one of the things that uh, Rick Renner, was, uh, he brought out, and there was a, this a little video clip you could catch on, um, I think the 700 Club or one of those places put it on. He was talking about it up on there. And he was, he was uh, mentioning how there was a sign. I think I wrote it, I wrote it down. I didn't quite get it to write it down when he was saying it. But uh, death, something to the effect that death may not enter, was put right up on, on top of it. And the idea was, you know, you would not die. But actually what the priest would do was if they deemed that you were near death, you weren't allowed inside. Because <laughs> they were not going to have anyone associated with the temple who died. So they had to be pretty sure you're going to make it in order for you to even get in there. But what happens was you would come into, the, into this area. It was kind of down underground, which is not a real fun thing for everybody anyway. But you would kind of come down into an underground area. It's like, like, a, like a cellar almost. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was down into the, into the ground. And then they would give you these, uh, this, this uh, drink. And in, it was uh, kind of a sedative and, and a hallucinogen. And you would drink this and you would kind of go to sleep. And while you were sleeping, you were going to have a dream. And in that dream, you were going to come out in the morning, and you were going to tell the priest what your dream was, and the priest would then interpret the dream or do something with the dream and tell you what you had to do to get healed. But while you were sleeping, one of the things that were in this temple, and you would, you would love this, as far as worship was concerned, you would just really enjoy this. One of the things that was in the temple were snakes. And the snakes were allowed to roam free. And they would tell you that a good thing was while you were sleeping, if while you were sleeping, one of the snakes crawled on top of you and crossed over you, that was the good thing because that was a sign you were going to get healed. <laughs> How many want to go? So snakes were going around here. And while you're in this uh, hallucinate state and kind of drowsy, these snakes would come up upon you. 
Uh, now, they weren't real poisonous snakes. That none of them could kill you. But, you know, it's, just, it's a snake. That's enough for most people. <laughs> but apparently, when you came in, you had to be prepared that snakes were there. And they were gonna, And if the snake came on top of you, you know, you didn't move, or I guess you wanted to scare the snake off because this is a good thing. The snake was coming on top. And so you come on down, you would tell the priest, and he would, he would uh, tell you different things, and you would make these clay uh, images of certain organs in your body, and they would use that as an offering to the God, and that's one of the ways that you would get healed in this thing. But <clears throat> there were healings that went on, supernatural healings that went on by the demon spirits of this God. So if you were in this city and you were a Christian, this is what you were up against. You were up against Zeus. You were up against Athena. You were up against some of the other minor gods in there. The, these were the three main ones. And then this supernatural healing God. And this supernatural healing God would heal people. Now, most times we know that when the de- demons heal people, it wasn't long-lasting. But they just needed to last for a little while for the word to get out and the people going home. And, I mean, emperors would come to this city to get healed. They get ministered, and this is how famous this, this city was. So they would come on in, and they would, uh, they would go through all these different things, and people, they would see people healed. And if you came along and be a Christian, they're going to say, well, look, we want to see something because we've seen what the other God does. So what are you going to be able to do? So if you were a Christian in that day, you had better be able to demonstrate the power of God because if you didn't, there was the power of God going, uh, these other gods going on around them. Now, as time went on and emperor worship became bigger, and I was already there in John's day, emperor worship was already there, this was an administrative city for Rome. So this also became a center for emperor worship. And they, now they worshiped the spirit of Roma. That's what they called it. And so this city became also a place for this, this, the uh, worship of Roma. And what would happen was that you would become, you, you had to declare the lordship of the emperor. And this is part of the, what this city had faced in here. Now, in the scripture that were given, and the angel of the church in Pergamos wrote, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So he's saying that he has a sharp two-edged sword. The other guy has a single-edged sword. He's got a two-edged sword is what he's saying. So he is speaking in the language for each of these churches, which they can hear. They are up against the guy with the sword, the right of the sword. He says, I've got a double-edged sword. I know your works. We know this from the other ones. This is the same exact way that he's phrasing all the others. Oida, I know by being there. I've been walking around. I know your works, works being general, and where you dwell, where you live, which is Satan's throne. It's where Satan's throne is. Now, we've talked about this before, and I went looking to get the the whole summary of it, and I couldn't quite find it the way I heard Rick Renner talk about this years ago. So um, I found glimpses and pieces of it. So I'm going to give it to you as I remember it from uh, Brother Rick telling it to us uh, a long time ago and um, what I was able to find out. But in this city, there was an actual, uh, the, the throne in, for Zeus, there was a thing called Satan's throne, the throne of, of Satan. And on this, there was an altar and people were sacrificed in the altar. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because we have one of the guys who, was, who that was done to. But this Satan's throne was coveted after by two countries, two very satanic countries. Two countries were Germany and Russia. And Lenin wanted it real bad. But he lost the race and Germany got it. And Germany took the entire thing out. And they brought it, the whole thing, the whole altar, 
all the marble, all the stuff, they took it all out and they moved it to Germany. They set it up in Berlin in 1930 in the uh, museum and it's still there. As far, as far as I know, it's still there to this day. If you want to go on down there and see this uh, Satan's throne, the whole, uh, the whole thing, you can go out there and you can see it. It's right there. But Lenin was a little upset that he didn't get it. And so what he had his uh, architects do was to uh, copy it. And so they copied it and they made a copy of it right there in, in their, their, their um, capital, Moscow. Right in the center of Red Square is a copy of this. Do you know what it's called? It's called Lenin's tomb. Lenin made his tomb out of a copy of Satan's throne. And he was buried in it. <laughs> Oof. I don't know that I... Of course, I, you know Lenin, so... He was a terrible, terrible reign. But this was served as inspiration, I'm told, also for Hitler. That Hitler took inspiration out of this, this thing. Uh, but as far as I know, it's, it's still over there today. This is the thing they were facing in this, this part with Zeus. It was, they had Satan's throne there. And he says, I realize that you are there in the midst of Satan's throne. And that you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. So there's two things that it did. First off, he held fast to my name. Now, this word here for hold fast, I think I put it in your, at least I put part of it in your, in your outline. It means a masterful or a superior grip. When this word is used, it is talking about a masterful or a superior grip. He is saying that you have taken a masterful or a superior grip hold of my name. You're not letting it go. Well, they were brought before this throne, and they were saying that you will, you will uh, declare the lordship of Caesar. And they said, no, we won't do it. They held on to the name of Jesus. They wouldn't, they wouldn't deny the faith in him. They wouldn't do either one. And, you know, there was people would say, just, just say Caesar is Lord and then go off and live anyway. No one checks up on you. They just want you to say it here. And they wouldn't do it. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Now, Antipas was a person who was, who was martyred for the, the works of God. Uh, he was actually brought in and... Uh, he, was, he, he, he was told that, you know, just look, we, we like you, but just, uh, just declare that Caesar is Lord. And then just go off and do whatever you want to do. And he said, I won't do it. I won't do it. And so he had to be uh, taken care of. And so this is how they did it. They had the, in, in the Satan's uh, throne, on the top of the altar, there was this bull. And this bull was the size that if you, could, you could put a person in it. And so you would take, you would open it up. And you would take the person, you would tie them up, and you would put them in, and it was done so that the head of the person would be up in the head of the bull, and then the rest of it would be kind of in the, in the rest of them. And then you'd close it, and you'd light the fire on the altar, and the fire would heat up the bull. The bull is made of iron, and it would basically turn it into an iron skillet, and it would fry the person alive. And as they were cooking, as they were, were fry and roast, they, you know, whichever way, <laughs> whatever they cooked them, but as they would moan that from the pain of, of being in there, there were horns placed in the head of the bull. And these horns magnified the moans of the person inside, and it made it seem like the bull was coming alive. And the, the, the sounds would come out of the bull, but they were magnified. And so he was put in there to, to die. 
as were many others, were sacrificed here in this throne. This is one of the sacrifices they would do. If you would not bow to, the, to this worship, then you were sacrificed, you were killed in this way. And these Christians, despite this type of a death that they would face, did not let go of the name of Jesus and did not let go of the faith that they had. Now, here's an interesting thing about it. Antipas is not his name. And yet it's in the letter, but it is not his name. Antipas is not a name. It's not a name of a person. So why does it come into the scriptures? Can't really tell you exactly what his name is, but he was the bishop of the city at the time. He was the one who oversaw. This is the one that they were killing. Antipas means this. It actually is a compound Greek word. Anti means against, and pos means, we've covered this one before, see if you remember, everything. The name Antipas was a nickname given to him by the heathens in the city, that he was against everything. And that's where he got his name. Oh, against everything is here. And this is what they would do. Because Christians were seemingly against everything. Remember, they were in a world where in, 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 um, in this world, especially in this particular city, if you were a Christian, you could not participate in most of the things that were going on. Most of the things that were, were happening happened around the temple. I think I put these in your outline. I just wanted to... Uh, look for them here to make sure I... Yep, here we are. Uh, so the Christians living there uh, could not be part of the labor unions. You want to know why? Because the labor unions met in the temples. That was their meeting place. Most places met in the temples. And so when the labor unions would meet, they would meet in the temples, and the Christians wouldn't go into the temples. They were idolatrous places of worship, and they wouldn't go into them. And so they... Uh, we're not able to be part of the labor unions. Well, if you're not part of the labor unions, then you didn't get work as easily as everybody else did. Uh, political parties, guess where they met? They met in the temples. So the Christians weren't able to be part of the political parties. Uh, all the social gatherings were held in the temples. So the Christians didn't get to go to the social gatherings. The best meat was sacrificed to the idols and sold in the temples. So if you wanted the best cuts of meat, then I'm told two different things. One was that all the meat was sold in the temples and one that all the best cuts were, the, were sold and the junk stuff was sold other places. So if you wanted any kind of good meat, you had to go to, but the Christians won't go to the temples and they had good reasons not to want to go there. One, you've got this one, this, this uh, supernatural healing God. Why would you want to get into the temple with that? Right? Uh, some of the gods that they had that, that, you know, that had the sexual practices that were involved, and we know that, that sex was, was going on in, in some of these. Man, these some of these were, were huge. Some of the, uh, I believe some of the largest ones were said that they had as many as 12,000 prostitutes to man the temple. 3,000 per shift. Men and women. Now what would happen in these, in these types of worships, and this is why Christians wouldn't go to it, is that you would not just go in there and, and they would have... Um, uh, sexual relations with each other. It wasn't just that that was going on, but it would occur on an altar. On one of the altars to the God that was there. Diana, uh, all the different ones that were in there. And what you, what you would do when you were uh, engaged in this activity with the priest or, or uh, priestess, uh, uh, just use the word, forgot it now. Prostitute, thank you. What you would do is you would openly yield yourself to the spirit of that God. 
And that God would be able to come into you. That spirit of that God would be able to come into you and you actually left the temple in a possessed state. The Corinthians were so bad at this, they actually had a name for it and they call it the being Corinthicized. That you were, if you were that much into the uh, uh, sexual activity, that you were that demon possessed, that you were that possessed by a spirit uh, from doing these things. So when they had this kind of stuff going on, and you could see the, the draw that it could have to unsaved people. You come on in here, and you can have, I mean, I'm sure they weren't ugly priests and priestesses that were there. And they would entice you in here with this, but in order to participate with it, you had to yield yourself to the worship. You had to yield yourself to these ones coming in. And, and this is the kind of thing, if, if that's what the worship was involved and that's what was going on. This other one, snakes are going all over you. And this, the spirits of these gods would come into you and give you dreams. You would be under hallucinogenic drugs. And the spirits would come into you and give you uh, illumination as to what your problem was. And Because the, the priests there didn't even diagnose you. They just let you have a dream. Whatever your dream was, that's what they worked off of. So this is what they're faced against. This is the, the kind of gods that were in this world. And this guy, the, the bishop of the church, was seen to be against everything. He's against us meeting at this temple. He's against us meeting at this temple. He's against us meeting at this temple. We can't go to the political groups because they meet at this temple. We can't go to the labor unions because they meet at this temple. What's this guy for? He's against everything. And so that's how he got his name. But God uses his name. In the, in the letter. Kind of interesting, isn't it? But they held fast, despite all this sort of stuff. They, they held fast to it. Now, this guy Antipas, Antipas he, was, um, he was quite active as the bishop. In fact, it is said that he cast out so many demon spirits out of people that were in the city that demon spirits were conversing with the priests of the temples that they had to do something about him. That's uh, getting pretty well known. <laughs> he was actually uh, being spoken of by the demon spirits to their priest that you need to do something about this guy, and that's why he was brought up and uh, eventually executed. But he wouldn't give in. He wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't go after, wouldn't change going after or st- staying with God. Make sure we got everything. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We have one more thing to go over in that, but we're going to wait here till the end. So we are going to come back to that verse of Scripture, but uh, let's continue on here into verse 14. But I have a few things against you. <laughs> I don't know. You would think, boy, if you're holding up under all that sort of stuff, I mean, whew, But look at what, it's amazing what he has against them. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who have taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual morality. Balaam here represents the moral decay and compromise. Moral decay and compromise. The story of Balaam goes that when he went up to the mountain to try and curse the children of Israel, he could not, even though he wanted to for the money, for the prestige and so forth. He couldn't. It wouldn't come out. And so uh, since he couldn't do it this way, he, he counseled the king and said, look, if you'll do this, you know, send the young woman, dress them up certain ways, and entice the men into relationships with them and pull them into idolatrous worship. And this will cause them 
to have a problem with their God and God won't stand for them anymore and then you'll be able to go in there and conquer them. So this is the, the thing that he wanted to do. And so this is, they held to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, if you're going to hold to the doctrine of Balaam, it's, it's uh, basically this. Whatever you do with your body does not affect your spirit. Whatever you do down here, it's not, it's, 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 go ahead, just do it. It's, it's not going to, you can be compromised. You can, be, the children of Israel, when they went, and went out with these, these women and they went into these idolatrous things, they, they still think, well, you know, we can do this and be Israelites. No, no, not really. That's not something that you can do. But that's what they, they felt. And they said, you have some who hold to that doctrine. You can't do that. You can see why in this kind of a sensual city. Well, you know, we, we want to be Christians, but we kind of like what we're, we have over here, and we think that we can still do that. And he says, you have some of those in there, and you need to, you need to stand up about that. And so he says, but I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, not everybody does, but they have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idol and to commit sexual idolatry. So there were people there who were apparently teaching, it's okay. Look, we're in this world. They're, this is where they are. And, and we can go ahead and do that because this is what the world is. But he's saying, no, <laughs> you, you can't do that. You can't go after that way. And he goes, thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, these are things that God, I mean, it's a strong word. He says, I hate them. I hate these things. We talked about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans today, or before, but uh, just for today, we'll go over and just give you another summary of it. This is uh, doctrinal decay and compromise. The other one is moral. This one is doctrinal. It's basically telling you you are not under the law. The law has ended. You, you're no longer under it anymore. How many times have we heard that one going out? Uh, pull up a Galatians 5.13. I didn't copy this into my outline, but I wanted to read it for you. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And we still have this doctrine going on today. There's a big thing on the grace uh, movement. That grace covers everything. And, uh, you know, whatever you want to do, you don't have to ask God for forgiveness for it. Just, you know, go ahead and do it, and you're forgiven. And that's the teaching that's going out here today. Uh, some people I know are holder, holders of this thing. But he says, don't, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Word of God still wants us to have victory over the flesh. So they were teaching that you're not under law. Uh, they taught you that the body is not important. The body is evil, so it doesn't matter what you do with the body. It's evil. That your body is not going to be taken to heaven. Your body is going to turn back to dust. So it does not matter what you do with your body. It's your spirit that's important. So do anything you want to with your body. But as far as your spirit is concerned, that's, where, that's what's real important. You've got to make sure you take care of your spirit. This is what they taught. Uh, grace is supreme. We hear this today. The Christian, they believe the Christian is so defended by grace that nothing could do them harm. You could go out there and basically do anything you want to. It's not going to harm you. Grace is that good of a defender. And um, the other one was you have to understand sin. The only way that you can understand sin, folks, is if you partake of sin. If you don't partake of sin, you're not going to understand sin. You're not going to be able to relate to sinners. This is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. 
These are some of the things I taught. There are other parts of it as well. We've gotten into things before. We're just giving you this summary. This is what they're facing with the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and they both are very similar in where they are taking them. So he says to them, Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So they heard this doctrine and said, oh, we like this because now, you know, we can be in the church and be saved and we can also come on over here and, and go in there and shop for meat and we can go in there and uh, have fun with the, 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 you know, the people in the temple, do all that fraternizing and stuff like that. Remember when the uh, church met and they were talking about what to do with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were getting saved, you know, should we make them be circumcised? Uh, you know, what, what are we going to do? What kind of things should we do? And they said, no, we're not going to do that. They don't have to be circumcised. They believe in the Lord Jesus. That's good. We're all, all we're going to ask them to do is to abstain from food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. What they're basically saying is stay out of the temples. Stay out of the temples of these false gods. That's really what they were saying. That's why they were looking at those particular things, because this is what was involved in the temple. So they had this decay that was coming in, even though they were under, uh, facing such strong opposition. And you've got to have some faith to stand here for this. They still had this compromise coming in. And, and generally what always happens with the devil, when he cannot crush the church with outright persecution then he tries to come in and get and soften it on the inside with doctrinal impurity. He tries to compromise it from the inside. And this is constantly the way that he goes. He tries to come in and, and compromise it and get it soft because if you can compromise the message, you'll generally soften the people from... Uh, from uh, they're not going to stand up as much. Uh, they're not going to have as, as much fortitude, uh, not much patience or as much uh, endurance. It, it's just you're going to be able to take care of them some. And so they come on in and try and soften them up. You know, if you were the, if the analogy was a sports team, imagine a sports team, you know, in the, in the beginning parts, they're really going at it. They're, they're working, they're running, they're doing all, they're getting up early. They're getting themselves in shape. They're in really, really good shape. But then, uh, you know, they, they win a couple of championships and they feel like, well, you know, we don't really have to go out there and, and uh, practice so hard. We're better than everybody else is. And, and so they don't get up as early, and they don't practice as hard. And then what happens? Well, you know, they're good for the first quarter. They're first good for the first part of the game. But then they start to, to lose strength, and they lose stamina. And then by the end of the game, they're just being walked out all, all, all over. And so that's the idea that Satan has. If we can soften them from the inside, then when we come in with a crushing blow, they won't be able to stand. And so all history has basically been this, softening the church through inward uh, compromise, doctrinal compromise, moral decay. And then when we feel like we got them at a certain spot, crush them with persecution. But generally what happens is the persecution comes in, it crushes some, it drives some out, but then there's that remnant that just doesn't go away. And then, you know, they get back to the doctrinal purity and the moral purity, and then they begin to uh, bring in others and others and others, and the church begins to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And the more they persecute it, the more it grows and the more it grows and the more it grows. And so he says, all right, we can't do it this way. So he pulls back on the persecution and he gets people back inside to soften it, to mess with his doctrine and, and, and until we get it soft and soft. And, so, and then we come back afterwards with persecution. And if you go through history, you're going to see it's constantly like this. Coming at it real hard and then backing off. And then coming out when we feel like they're ripe, and then backing off. 
and then coming at it when we feel like they're ripe, and it just about gets it to the where it's wiped out, but then backs off and it, because we have to, it, they're growing too much, and it's just always been the pattern. It's important that we not give in to this. The Word, the word of God says that he hates this. God does not like his church to be compromised because he knows when the church becomes compromised, it becomes softened. And that people can come in and attack. And that people can come in and they can do things. We see this all the time, even in churches in America today. We've got some people that are after our church. They want a church that feeds them, that gives them the Word of God, gives them the pure Word of God, that even though it sometimes hurts to hear what the Word of God says, oh, that's all right, it's getting me sharp, it's getting me ready, it's getting me uh, built up and, and stronger. And then other times you see people say, well, you know, I've had enough of that. I'm just going to go on over here and just, I want to hear, I want to feel good when I come out of church. I just want to go to church and just feel pumped up. And, and so you see churches begin to grow up and there's not as much word in the church. And then pretty soon there's no word in the church. And pretty soon we begin to preach things that the world believes. Then we compromise on all these things and the church becomes soft and the church becomes, uh, well, you know, we can go ahead and let that in. Oh, well, gay marriage. Well, you know, they're, they're God's children too. And and then we begin to accept all these different things and the church becomes soft and soft and soft and uh, not able to stand up against any persecution. And the persecution goes, well, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it your way. And uh, that's what the plan of the devil is. But the goal, God says, don't let, don't let your doctrine be compromised. Stay sharp in the word. The world is going to push us in a direction to compromise it's going to push us in a direction to be accepting. It's going to push us in a direction to uh, go after all the pleasures that the world has to offer. <coughs> but don't do it. Don't go after it. He says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Fight against who? Those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. He will fight against them. Repent or else I will come. He's already been there. He knows people by name. <laughs> Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You think that sword in your city is bad? Wait until you see this. Now look at this verse. He who has an ear to hear, or he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is all about us hearing what it is that he is saying. Not hearing what we want, but hearing what he is saying. It's imperative that we understand what he says. Just because uh, people get up and they begin to teach and they begin to preach and they say, well, you know what, he, what God, we're really trying to say. Does the rest of the word support that? What is he saying? Not do we want it, what we want it to say, not what we're more comfortable with it saying. What is he saying? We've got to stay with that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, he says churches, not church. Did you see that? He's saying this to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So he's talking to all the churches right now. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Remember when manna first made his appearance? It came in its appearance for the children of Israel, and it was their sustenance in dry places, in places where there was no food. And he says, I will give you the hidden manna. I will give you the sustenance that you need to get you through. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. 
and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now we look at that and we say, well, we got a nice little white stone. Isn't that neat? But again, he's writing to the churches of this day. Now one of the things that they would do and this is, uh, especially in this city, and then probably in other cities around, they would carry these little things called amulets. And sometimes they're making their way back, even in today, you'll see some of these amulets that uh, they go. Sometimes they put them in their pockets, sometimes they put them on a, on a rope, put it around their neck. Sometimes they are crystal. Sometimes they're crystal-like, but they're, little, they're white stones. Sometimes they're not that white crystal st- stuff. But um, what they would do with these is they would in, in, engrave the name of certain demon spirits. And they would carry these names, these demon spirits, in their pocket. And what they would do is they pull the, the little amulet out, and they would look at the name, and they would meditate on the name. And they would say the name. And they felt like if they spoke that name of that demon God, that demon spirit that this power of that demon spirit would be theirs. That's what they believed. That's what was going on around there. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you a white stone, and you can carry it around. But on that white stone is written a new name, which no one knows except him who receives it. No one knows it. On the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So this is why this meant something to them, because there were people carrying around names on stones. But he says, you don't worry about those stones. I'm going to put a name on there. And, and what name would it be? Well, maybe it depends on which name you need, because God has a whole lot of names depending upon what name you, you need at the time. Remember the uh, Jehovah Jireh and the, uh, the, all the different names that they had for Jehovah depending upon what they needed. Whatever they needed, he became Jehovah that. Uh, Jehovah, my provider, protector, all the different things, healer, all the things that he would be, whatever they needed, he would be that. And he says, I'm going to put a name on that stone and what it's going to be what you need. And you're just going to say that Jesus, Jesus, is my helper, Jesus, is my healer, Jesus, is my deliverer, whatever it is that you need, you're going to have that. And the power behind that name will come into your life. And I will give him a white stone and on a stone, a new name written which no one knows except him. This name was going to carry them through because some of them would be martyred. Some of them would be killed. Some of them would be, be destroyed. This word martyr is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word martus, which is transliterated martyr, but it actually means witness. In Romans chapter, or Revelations chapter 1 and verse 5, we read this word, but we didn't see it this way. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Did you catch it? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr, the faithful witness, is how it's translated. Most times this word is translated witness. In Revelations chapter 3 and verse 14, And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of creation of God. It's the same word. This word martyr was never actually meant martyr until they started killing Christians. 
when they started to kill Christians, they were killing witnesses. They were killing witnesses of Jesus. They were killing witnesses of the way. They were killing witnesses of the way of Christianity. And so since they were killing so many witnesses, this word became to be known as martyr. And that's how it evolved. And that's how it became. But before Christians were killed, this word didn't mean that. It simply meant witness. In the days that are to come, in the days that we are here, we're not seeing too many Christians martyred right now in this country. But things have changed quickly in the last couple of years, and things are probably going to still continue to change. And we may find it come that in order for us to stand for our property, our, 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 our beliefs, that we are going to be threatened, and we better be ready. And so the things that are written to the churches of this day and the things that they faced, we need to understand, we need to be ready for them as well. Are we ready to hold fast to the name of Jesus? Are we ready to hold fast to the faith in Jesus? Are we ready to put a tight grip on, a grip that we will not let go? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be called Antipas against everything? Well, you guys are just against everything. Everything is fun. You guys are against it. Are we willing to be called that by a a world that we are around? Or are we going to feel the pressure that they have to be able to relate to us? No, we need to make a stand for the things of the word. We need to make a stand for the gospel. And in the world of compromise, which is what they were facing here, they had, in this city they had people that held to two compromising doctrines. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I hate that. I hate that. In this world, we're going to find that there's going to be more pressure for the church to compromise, to give in, to go along with the crowd to go along with how things are, to get along. And we need to be willing to say, no, I'm not going to do it. We're going to stand. You can kill me if you want. I'm not going to change. We need to be willing to, to go like these guys did. I mean, be written in a letter. I saw Antipas there. The guy's against everything. <laughs> he wasn't against me, and I'm not against him. The Word of God tells us that if you would declare my name before men, I'll declare you before my Father. If anyone were to come to us, we need to get ourselves psyched up for it now. If anyone were to come to us and say, renounce Christ or die, we need to realize they are giving us an opportunity to get something that not every Christian gets, the crown of life. How great would that be if someone were to come to you and give you that opportunity? You ought to get yourself ready for it. You ought to, uh, if somebody comes up and threatens you, a big smile to come across your, your face. Are, are, you, are you saying what I think? Are you saying you're going you're gonna to take my life? Really? For believing? It? Oh, good, good. This is good. Because you're going to give me the opportunity to get something that I wouldn't get otherwise. I will receive the crown of life. This is great. I'm not renouncing. Go ahead and kill me. They came up with some very creative ways, some very painful ways, because they hoped that in the painful process of dying, that people would recant. And I don't know how many ever did that in the midst of of all that, or if it even changed anything. What I do know is, be ready. Be ready to give an account for your faith. Be ready to make a stand, because the world is going to try and force you to compromise. 
you need to stand up and say, no, this is what we believe. This is what we hold to. And that you're willing to go to the grave for it. Just understand God sees what's going on. And he knows. Doesn't mean he's going to jump in and stop it. We already saw that in last week's uh, church. Uh, he, he didn't say, I'm going to run in and stop it. He says, you endure to the end. Ten days, it'll be over. <laughs> no matter how many days it takes, don't ever give in. But the basis for it is don't compromise on your doctrine. Don't compromise on what your faith is founded on. Because if you do, you won't have as much to stand on, and you will be moved off of it. <coughs> Satan will try and destroy the church from within, and he will try and destroy the church from without. And we as Christians need to be on guard for both. Don't let them come in with false doctrine, and don't let them compromise you by outward pressure. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. In life, we live it for you. In death, we die for you. We stand for your promises. We stand for your purpose. We stand for your word. We will not make any compromise to get along with the world or to gain points with them. For the only one we want to gain points with is you. And you say this over and over to all these churches. I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know the day-to-day. -day. I've been watching you. I've been walking around you. I've been seeing the things that are going on. I know what you face. I know what you've done. I know what you stood for. And Father, we want our letter to read that you know that we made a stand, that we did not compromise, that we did not give in, and we stood for your name and stood for your faith, that we held on with an iron grip and would not let go. No matter how many people want to say that we are just Antipas against everything, it won't matter. For we are for you. And we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.